Hey y'all! Happy New Year! Glad to be back to talk about Haiti this episode. Now I know this is supposed to be an American and Black American history podcast, but Africa and the African diaspora are part of teaching Black history, and Haiti, as the site of a successful slave rebellion that turned into a revolution that both abolished slavery and created the first sovereign Black nation in the Americas, was a huge deal for Black America, up to and beyond emancipation. So to talk about Haiti and its ties to Black America, I have with me today Professor Leslie Alexander from Arizona State University, whose book, Fear of a Black Republic, How Haitian Sovereignty Inspired the Birth of Black Internationalism, should be out this fall. So to start the conversation, let's just talk about the Haitian Revolution. It's an event that even I don't know very many details about, and that definitely is not taught and talked about enough. I really am glad we're having this conversation and appreciate the chance to talk to you. The Haitian Revolution is a really complicated story because it lasts for more than a decade. And so there's lots of maneuvering that takes place among the rebels and the leaders of the rebellion in order to try to figure out how to best position themselves to be able to gain their independence. And initially, the most important thing for them is to gain freedom from enslavement. It initially began as a rebellion of enslaved people in the middle part of August in 1791. I want to point out just very quickly that it is significant that it occurs in the early part of the 1790s because it's at a moment in history that historians usually refer to as the age of revolution. It's just on the heels of the American Revolution where British colonists are seeking their freedom from rule by the English crown. And then you also have the French Revolution, uh, which is particularly significant because the territory that becomes Haiti was originally referred to as Saint-Domingue and had been established as a colony of the French. And so it is important that both the American, the U.S. Revolution, and then also the French Revolution had just occurred because there's all these ideas about natural rights and human rights and what freedom ought to look like and what liberty is. All of these ideas are circulating in the colonies uh, across the Americas and really across the entire Atlantic world. And so both neither of those revolutions, of course, instilled Africans with the desire to be free. They were born with that, right? So they didn't need the American or the French Revolution to give them the desire for freedom. But what it did help is create an environment where it became increasingly difficult to justify enslavement. And it gave them a language to use to fight back against the people who had been rationalizing and justifying their enslavement. So shortly before what we think of now as the Haitian Revolution begins to jump off, there's a series of rebellions. There were already independent maroon communities that existed up in the mountains and in various places around Haiti that had become increasingly active, creating safe havens for fugitives to come and find freedom. Then you also have free people of color in Saint-Domingue who had started agitating for their rights. Again, drawing upon the language of the American and the French revolutions, essentially saying, look, we're legally free and we have a right to the same rights of citizenship as white folks get. So there's kind of an energy and a spirit (laughs) of revolution that's existing at the time. And of course, when you combine that with what I said, the 
sort of already inherent existing desire among all humans to want to be free, Africans in Saint-Domingue are becoming increasingly agitated and inspired to fight for their liberation. So there's a series of kind of uprisings and revolts that take place prior to 1791, but things really jump off in August of 1791 when two spiritual leaders, a man named, he's in some documents is referred to as Bukman Duddy, in others he's referred to as Duddy Bukman, but he is understood to have been a highly influential and powerful spiritual leader alongside a female spiritual leader as well named Cecile Fatima. And the two of them start to assemble a series of gatherings where they're using spiritual gatherings and rituals as an opportunity to sow the seeds of revolution. So there's a series of gatherings that take place. And then in the middle of August, things really pop off. And they hold a large gathering that night in the northern region of Haiti in the woods in a place called Boy Cayman. They hold a series of rituals and gatherings there. And in the days that follow, it turns into a revolt. And over the next number of months, the revolt turns into a revolution. I should point out they do, they did have a bit of a demographic advantage, if that's the right word to use, by comparison to the United States, where the demographics were almost entirely reversed. Saint-Domingue at the time, now Haiti, is a relatively small space, only about 13,000 square miles. But there were about 500,000 enslaved Africans in the colony at the time on about eight to 10,000 plantations. And there's only about 40,000 white French colonists who are living permanently full time on the island. So demographically speaking, again, by comparison to the United States, they're a pretty serious majority in that regard. And so when the revolt pops off, it's very easy for the revolt to sort of spread contagiously across the colony and for it to turn into a real revolution. I'll just quickly add that it becomes really complicated over the period of the revolution because obviously the French are struggling (laughs) to regain control over the colony. Spain, which at the time controls the other side of the island, For people who are unaware, what is now Haiti exists on an island that is divided down the middle with essentially there's a a massive mountain range that divides the island. And the one side of the island had had been controlled by the French and was referred to as Saint-Domingue. The other side of the island had been controlled by Spain and was referred to as Santo Domingo and, of course, is now the Dominican Republic. And so at a certain point, Spain is also trying to gain control over that territory, wanting to put down the rebellion and also hoping to spread their influence across the mountains. And England and the United States also are hoping to gain control over the territory. At the time, Saint-Domingue was referred to as the Pearl of the Antilles. It was one of the wealthiest colonies in the Americas. It was responsible for exporting about half of the coffee and sugar that was consumed in Europe and in other parts of the Americas. So this was definitely the crown jewel in the French empire. And so other Western nations were really interested in hoping to try to gain control over it as well. So the rebels go through a very lengthy and exhausting process 
of trying to ally themselves at various points with different Western nations, trying to oust certain sides and then regain control. But they eventually do gain partial control over the colony. They manage to get the French to agree to abolish slavery. (laughs) The, The French agreed to do that in hopes that if they abolish slavery, they could at least maintain control over the island. But of course, in the long term, that strategy did not work. And in late 1803, again, after obviously more than a decade of warfare, they finally defeat and oust the French. And on January 1st, 1804, they declare their independence. So I know that's a lot of (laughs) complicated history, but hopefully that gives a little rundown. You really emphasize the fact that it wasn't just Haitian people were just fighting against the French, all sorts of Western nations were like, no, I want Haiti. I want Haiti. That's why it took so long to become free. What was then referred to as Saint-Domingue was such an extraordinarily rich space in terms of its natural resources. The climate was ideal for producing massive cash crops like sugar and coffee. And then Haiti also was home to large numbers of natural resources in terms of minerals and also timber and wood. Over the course of the 19th century, Haiti was really robbed of large portions of its mahogany, of its logwood, all different types of timber to build and enhance other parts of the Americas. So it's always interesting when they talk about the problem of deforestation in Haiti, they never point the finger (laughs) at the people who really deforested Haiti to begin with. And that was white Western nations from other parts of the Americas and the Atlantic world that really robbed the island of much of its natural resources. I definitely want to get back to the way that Haiti, because everyone wanted a piece of it, was kind of starting at a deficit. But since we were talking about how like vested a lot of different people were in the future of Haiti, two important groups to this conversation are white Americans and black Americans. It really changed everything for both of them. So let's just start with white America's reaction to independent Haiti. Yeah, I mean, white Americans were really terrified when they learned about the initial revolt and rebellion, as they tended to be when they were concerned about any revolt or rebellion that took place in the Americas, because they knew that There was obviously a spirit of rebellion among the enslaved people in general. The term that they used a lot was the contagion, the contagion of rebellion. It really tells us a lot about the extent of communication among enslaved people across the Atlantic world. The fact that they knew that if an uprising occurred in Martinique or Curacao or Jamaica or Cuba, that eventually news of that revolt would reach the United States and more specifically reach the enslaved communities and potentially inspire other types of revolt. So they really viewed revolts across the Americas in general as a real threat. But as the revolt in, at the time, Saint-Domingue, becomes really obviously not just another revolt, but an unstoppable rebellion, within months, the number of rebels involved in the revolt reaches an estimated 80,000 enslaved people. And when that happens and months go by and the French are sending in troops and are being completely wiped out, they start to become really concerned. If you look in particular at the correspondence of political leaders like George Washington, like Thomas Jefferson, like Alexander Hamilton, 
after months have gone by and the revolt is not being put down, they're scared that the revolt is going to inspire similar types of revolts in the United States. Now, in fairness to them, it actually turns out that it does. We know of the Pancoupe conspiracy, the 1811 German coast uprising in Louisiana, Denmark Vesey's conspiracy, likely even Nat Turner's rebellion that takes place almost 30 years later. <laughs> All of these rebellions in the United States were in fact in some way inspired by the Haitian Revolution. So they're not entirely wrong, <laughs> right, in being fearful about the ways in which a revolt and then eventually a successful revolution could inspire other rebellious behavior. If you look at other parts of the Americas, if you look at Jamaica, if you look at Curacao, if you look at Martinique, if you look at other colonies where enslaved people existed, they are all drawing upon the Haitian Revolution as an example for their own rebellions. They were right to be afraid of Haiti. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is the interesting thing, right? I think this is the interesting aspect about slavery is that I think at the core of it, white folks knew that enslaved people wanted to be free. And they know <laughs> that a revolt could happen at any time. And they are living in a fairly constant state of terror. Haiti was terrifying for white America, but also for black America, this changed everything. And you were talking about the age of revolutions and this idea of like self-determination and freedom. And this was really the first revolution of that whole period that actually included black liberation. It changed what freedom looked like and became a huge focal point for black Americans to be thinking about and talking about. Absolutely. I think, again, what's interesting is, is that obviously even for Black folks in the United States, this isn't their first exposure, right, to a revolt. They knew what had happened in what was becoming the United States, right? There was a, a massive revolt in 1712 in New York City, another one in 1741. They knew all about the Stono Rebellion in South Carolina in 1739. They knew that more than a fifth of the enslaved population ran for their freedom during the American Revolution. So they knew what, <laughs> what revolutionary freedom-seeking activity looked like, and they knew how to participate in it themselves. What they hadn't seen was a model of success. What they knew <laughs> was that revolts tended to result in waves of bloody retribution followed by waves of devastating legal action. So what the Haitian Revolution provided was an example, even before the revolution proved successful in that decade between 1791 and 1804. They're receiving news across the ocean in seaports and then transporting the information to plantations and surrounding areas. So they know what's happening and they see that this organized army of Black folks are successfully beating all of these Western powers. And so it is it is providing an extraordinary model for what rebellious activity could look like and the possibility of a successful revolt. And then at the beginning of 1804, when they actually declare their independence, announce that they have ousted the French army and that they are establishing themselves as 
the first sovereign black nation in the Americas. Imagine that. It's 1804. Slavery still exists in large portions of the northern part of the United States at this time. And here you have a group of enslaved people who have thrown off their shackles, formed an army, and have defeated every single one of the world's most powerful armies at the time, and then have established themselves as a sovereign nation. And along the way, by the way, abolishing slavery. (laughs) So it's almost hard to overemphasize the significance of what Haiti meant symbolically, certainly to enslaved and free Black people in the United States. But of course, it also had real symbolic resonance among white folks across the Atlantic world too, right? So it's this very polarizing event. Yeah, because Haiti is this like model of a successful slave rebellion and Black liberation, Black Americans kind of tie Haiti's fate to their own fate. They vest a lot of hope in Haiti, while at the same time, white America won't even acknowledge Haiti. They don't want to say slave rebellions are good, so they won't even form a diplomatic relationship with Haiti. They kind of ignore it for a while, which, yeah, that's super polarizing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that Haiti's existence as the first and only sovereign Black nation in the Americas at the time really represents a beacon of hope, a beacon of possibility to enslaved and free Black folks really across the Americas, but certainly among those in the United States. They are profoundly inspired by Haiti and also deeply committed to its success. So they're tremendously concerned about what Haiti's fate is going to be. They're determined to cast their lot with Haiti, and they're determined to do whatever they can in their power to ensure that Haiti is successful, particularly, as you point out, after it becomes clear that none of the white Western nations are going to have anything to do with Haiti as a sovereign nation. What's really, really complicated in the case of the United States is that the U.S. had had a very, very profitable trade relationship with Saint-Domingue prior to and during the revolution. So once Haiti establishes itself as a sovereign nation, they're in a really complicated situation of having to determine what their relationship is going to be. About two years or so in 1806, after Haiti declares its independence, the United States actually, like in retaliation for Haiti declaring its independence, tries to impose an economic boycott. As you pointed out, they're already refusing to recognize Haiti diplomatically. But they also try to impose an economic boycott, essentially saying, we're not going to trade with you. That becomes so financially devastating to the United States. The Haitians are like, fine, go ahead. But that decision to boycott trade with Haiti becomes so financially devastating to northern merchants in the United States that the boycott doesn't even last a full four years. And they immediately begin to resume trade with Haiti again. So over the course of the next more than 50 years, the United States has this very complicated relationship with Haiti where they're profiting enormously off of a very active trade with Haiti. They even have economic representatives that reside in Haiti that are overseeing U.S. trade into the country, but refusing to acknowledge that Haiti actually exists. 
And of course, throughout that period, and this is a good portion of what my book is documenting, is the ways in which Black activists are trying to pressure the U.S. Congress to extend formal diplomatic recognition to Haiti. Now, in truth, they know that on a practical level, formal recognition by the United States will probably change very little (laughs) for Haitians themselves. But they believe that it is important symbolically and practically for the United States to have to recognize the existence of this free Black nation. And so from their perspective, they're very politically invested in trying to force the United States to say, yes, there is actually a free, autonomous, sovereign Black nation that exists in the Americas. And it is one that was founded as the result of successful slave rebellion. And of course, it's precisely for that same reason that the U.S. Congress refuses to do so. It was kind of a battle between Black people and the Southern slave power. Part of legitimizing slavery was not acknowledging a successful slave rebellion, but Black people were continually petitioning and doing all kinds of political activism to sway America towards diplomatic recognition of Haiti. For decades. So during much of the 1820s, they are largely engaged in using publications. They're delivering speeches. They're writing essays. They're using newly established Black newspapers to try to educate people about Haiti, about Haitian history, and trying to advocate for the importance of global diplomatic recognition for Haiti. In the 1830s, they kind of up their game a bit and begin to focus on pressuring the U.S. Congress to extend formal diplomatic recognition. So they actually wage a petitioning campaign The first petitions that we've been able to find were sent to the U.S. Congress in 1837, and the last of them came in in 1844. So over about a seven or eight year period, they are bombarding the U.S. Congress with petitions. Over the course of that time, an estimated 30,000 people in the U.S. signed petitions in favor of Haitian recognition, and they were presented one by one by one by one to the U.S. Congress. And it results in a pretty nasty debate, particularly in um, late 1838 and 1839. The U.S. Congress gets really consumed over this question of Haitian recognition. It's happening at a really complicated time in the U.S. Congress, at a moment where Southern, as you were saying, Southern congressional representatives had become really frustrated with the efforts of abolitionists to keep putting issues of slavery onto the national agenda. And so they had attempted to initiate a series of what became known as gag rules, essentially saying any law any petition, any issue that attempts to, the language they were using at the time, abridge or essentially limit the right of people to hold other people in bondage will no longer be heard on the congressional floor. So their position was essentially that it was beyond the jurisdiction of the U.S. Congress to either outlaw or uphold slavery. And so they were putting a gag on any topics that dealt with the institution of slavery. So what's really interesting about the petitions seeking recognition for Haiti is that they were kind of a a clever like end around strategy because they didn't explicitly deal with the question of slavery, right? They were simply petitions saying, we want the United States to recognize the existence of Haiti, right? To extend diplomatic recognition to Haiti. So the gag rules couldn't prevent the presentation of 
the petitions on the congressional floor. But of course, everybody knew <laughs> that the petitions seeking recognition for Haiti were also really about slavery and about trying to push the idea that Black people had the same right to freedom and independence and sovereignty as other folks. So it leads to some pretty nasty <laughs> debates on the congressional floor in 1838, 1839, even extending a little bit into 1840. But eventually, Southern congressional representatives band together pretty effectively and just keep voting as a block to send the petitions to committee. And then in committee, they would shut the petitions down. So that eventually became their strategy. And abolitionists continued to bombard Congress for a number of years thereafter, but it essentially didn't go anywhere at that point. So almost another 30 years goes by <laughs> before the United States Congress finally makes the decision to extend diplomatic recognition. It's not until after the outbreak of the Civil War. Yeah, after the South is no longer American, they didn't have to worry about the South blocking that. You know, what was really interesting to me, though, in doing this research is that I had always looked at the story of the U.S. Congress making the decision to extend recognition to Haiti, looking at the date, okay, it's 1862, the South has seceded, and so the remaining representatives just decided to go ahead and extend recognition. Like, to me, I had always, in the back of my mind, just assumed, okay, once the Southern congressional representatives were gone, <laughs> it was a quick and easy path. But in doing the research for this book, I was really stunned by how ugly and intense the debate in Congress was even in 1862. There were still slave-holding Southerners who had remained loyal to the Union, who were still representatives in Congress at the time. There were also moderate Republicans who were not entirely sure how they felt about extending recognition to Haiti. And then, of course, there were the Unionists folks on both sides of the political line who had just decided they were they wanted the union to be successful no matter what but they were ambivalent on the question of slavery and so it was not an easy path in congress even in 1862 even after the confederacy had been formed and this was all symbolic the thing is establishing a diplomatic relationship really just meant that the us acknowledged that Haiti existed as a sovereign Black nation and that Haiti and the U.S. would exchange diplomats, which just shows kind of the depth of anti-Blackness in America that it took that much time and effort for the small symbolic action of recognizing Haiti. So we've discussed what Haiti meant to Black people in America symbolically as a place of great hope and expectation, but Haiti did not and could not live up to all that Black America wanted from it. And reality pretty quickly didn't match what Black people expected out of Haiti. And this collision between symbolic hope and reality really comes into focus when you discuss the immigration movement to Haiti. So let's talk about that. Beyond formal recognition, Black folks in the United States in the 19th century became deeply interested in Haiti as a potential homeland. I actually wrote an article called Black Utopia that spoke a little bit about the ways in which Black folks imagined Haiti as a Black utopia. And they certainly did in the early and mid-19th century. They first begin actually physically migrating 
to Haiti in the 1820s. Discussions about it first begin like around 1815, between 1815 and 1817. And by the 1820s, uh, Black folks in the United States begin migrating to Haiti. There's a few reasons for why this happens in this particular time period. So the politics of Haiti are, are really complicated in the first couple of decades after they gained their independence. Independence was declared under the governor general at the time, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who after a, a couple of years was assassinated. And following his assassination, the country divides into two regions. So the northern part of the region is actually governed by a king, Henry Christophe, and the southern part of the country becomes a republic under Alexandre Pétion. So the politics of Haiti are really complicated. And I think Black folks in the United States go through a period where they're not entirely sure how to navigate that. Who are they going to align themselves with? How do they feel about this political division? But in 1818, a new leader succeeds Alexandre Pétion. His name is Jean-Pierre Boyer. And Boyer takes control over the southern part of the country, but also extends his power up into the north. But more significantly, he takes his army across the mountains and conquers Santo Domingo and unites the entire island. So this becomes a really inspiring moment for Black folks in the United States, but for folks across the Americas, because for the first time, they're not worried about Spanish coming across the island and trying to gain control over Haiti. And they're looking at the country as really a united nation for the first time in quite a long time. One of the other things that Boyer does is he actually sends a representative, a man named Jonathan Granville, to the United States. And he travels all along up and down the eastern seaboard trying to recruit free Black people to migrate to Haiti. So Boyer actually reaches out with kind of early Pan-Africanist messages, you know, saying we're all children of Africa. The blood of Africa runs through all of our veins and we are opening our country to be a, a safe haven for you. So Boyer begins to actually very intentionally appeal to the Black population in the United States. So 1822, 1823, 1824, 1825, thousands of Black people begin to migrate from the United States to Haiti. An estimated 13,000 Black folks migrate from the United States to Haiti just in the middle part of the 1820s. In the newspapers, they often refer to it as Haitian fever, this idea that there is this enthusiastic appeal that Haiti as a destination really begins to take hold, particularly, obviously, in the northern part of the United States. Things start to go wrong in the middle part of the 1820s for a couple of reasons. I have argued in my book that the first and most significant reason is what has become known as the indemnity. So what happens in 1825, in July 1825, the French government becomes extremely concerned about Haiti's unwillingness to resubmit, right, to colonial authority. And a lot of French citizens in particular are saying, look, we lost all of our property. And they're not just talking, by the way, about the physical space. They're not talking just about the land. They're also talking about the human beings they had owned. Um, so we have lost all this property in Saint-Domingue. 
The French government is not doing anything to get us our money back. They did not successfully, you know, defend our territory and our property. And so the French government owes us restitution. And so what the French government decides to do is send, I've referred to it as sort of classic gunboat diplomacy. They send a fleet of warships to Port-au-Prince, which is the capital of Haiti. They send a fleet of warships and point nearly 500 cannons at the capital city and essentially say, unless you agree to these terms, which, as I said before, later becomes referred to as the indemnity, unless you agree to these terms, France is going to fight this out and force Haiti to return to our colonial authority. So President Boyer either has to submit to incessant warfare and potentially the reimposition of French colonial authority and slavery, or he has to agree to the terms in the document. And essentially what the document says is, in order to gain its independence, in order for France to recognize Haitian independence, Haiti will be forced to pay 150 million gold francs to France in installments over a period of years until the terms are met. The the other kind of major stipulation essentially says that France will no longer be forced to pay taxes when they come in to trade with Haiti. So this is kind of a double whammy, right? (laughs) It is simultaneously shackling Haiti to this massive debt. I mean, for your listeners to get a sense of what that means, in contemporary terms, 150 million gold francs has been estimated to be somewhere in the range of $20 billion, okay, contemporarily. So here's a country, right, that has just gained its independence. Countries around the world are refusing to trade with them. And now France is essentially saying you can no longer profit when we come and trade in your ports. So they're cutting off one of their major sources of income and also shackling them to this unimaginable debt. And that's after they had already earned free, after they had already like declared independence. That's what gets me. It's like, we're already free and independent, but now you have to pay to continue to stay free and independent. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) And so here's Boyer, the Haitian president, Jean-Pierre Boyer. Over a period of days, he's pondering it. He's trying to figure it out. The Haitian people, in the meantime, know nothing about this. All they know is that these French ships have arrived in the harbor. Boyer finally makes the decision he's going to accept the terms of the indemnity. So he announces to the Haitian people, the French have come and they're here to acknowledge that we are, in fact, an independent and sovereign nation. So there's these huge celebrations that take place all across Haiti and in Black communities all across the United States and Boston and Richmond and Baltimore. What no one except Jean-Pierre Boyer and perhaps a couple of his officials and the French officials know is that Boyer, in exchange for that, has shackled Haiti to this debt that they simply cannot ever recover from. So it's not until weeks later that the news finally comes out. And interestingly enough, even white folks in the United States look at the arrangement and say, this is insane. Mainstream white newspapers in the U.S. are saying, this is patently unfair, and Haiti has no hope of ever recovering from this debt. And yet it still went forward, (laughs) right? So 
for people who, you know, hear in the news the sort of endless chant of Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, there's a reason for that. And it all stems back to the indemnity. So bringing us back to how Black folks are responding to this, when news of the indemnity comes out, Black folks in the United States never want to publicly disparage Haiti, and they almost never do. But they become very concerned about Haiti's financial stability going forward. And they're also disappointed in Boyer's decision to agree to the terms of the indemnity. To them, it sort of symbolically suggests that they weren't as committed to their right to freedom as the revolution had suggested. And they become kind of disappointed in Boyer as a leader. So they're very hesitant to publicly speak about it, but they begin to back off a bit from the emigration movement. And by 1829, 1830, the immigration movement for all intents and purposes has largely unraveled. I will say very quickly that, you know, the other factor that really caused the immigration movement to unravel, and I think we have to tell the whole story, right, good and bad, is that Black folks from the United States who migrated to Haiti in the 1820s were not necessarily prepared for what they were going to find. They were looking for the promised land. Yeah, they were looking for the promised land, right? They were looking for the land of milk and honey, which was entirely understandable, you know, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. I get why they wanted to find that in Haiti. But the reality is that Haiti was a country that had been ravaged by warfare. It was a country that was just coming off of revolution and trying to establish itself as an independent nation. It was a country that had just reunited and was trying to maintain its sovereignty against an entirely hostile world. And it was then a country that was really delivered an economic death blow by the indemnity. As a practical matter, Haitians themselves, although again, we were all children of Africa, Haitians were culturally and linguistically distinct from Black folks that had been in the United States. Most of them spoke Haitian Creole. A few people spoke French, right? But the vast majority of them spoke Haitian Creole. They did not speak English. Folks who were migrating from the United States did not speak Haitian Creole, and very few of them spoke French. For the most part, the Black folks who were coming from the United States had been indoctrinated in Protestant Christianity. And most Haitians were were not Protestant Christians. (laughs) Some of them were Catholic. But a large number of them were practitioners of the religion of Vodou. So religiously, linguistically, and just culturally, these folks are different (laughs) in a lot of ways. And the folks who are coming from the United States are not necessarily prepared for what they're going to encounter on the ground. So by the early part of the 1830s, the first wave of the immigration movement had largely dissolved. There's still a trickle of folks who migrate from the United States to Haiti over the 1840s. And then there's a whole second wave that takes place in the 1850s as well. And it's actually towards the tail end of that movement that Frederick Douglass considers migrating to Haiti. But the immigration movement from the U.S. to Haiti is fraught um, with difficulty in a lot of ways, right? Cultural and linguistic distinctiveness on the one hand, but also just the larger environment of the political and economic situation that Haiti found itself in as the result of the hostility from other white Western nations. Yeah, that really emphasizes this kind of central problem of Black people had this like great hope of Haiti that it was a huge like symbolic and rhetorical tool, yet 
when it didn't live up to the expectations, they kind of wanted to back off of it. They didn't want to be super pro Haiti. You talk about in the book that there's like a whole reverse immigration movement where like a third of people come back after trying to live in Haiti. And I should point out that these estimates come from the Haitian government. And the Haitian government was annoyed at the time because they had paid for people to migrate from the U.S. to Haiti. And then the migrants are disgruntled. But according to the Haitian government, about a third, again, this is in the first wave, the folks who came in the 1820s, that about a third of the people who originally migrated ended up returning to the United States. One of the things I really do want to underscore, though, which I think is significant and says a lot about the solidarity of Black transnational politics, is that even when the indemnity happens, even when Boyer agrees to it, even when the first wave of the immigration movement unravels, you almost never see Black folks in the United States speaking publicly an ill word about Haiti or even about Boyer. There are a couple of people in the 1850s, a handful of people actually, who are speaking out publicly against the idea of migration to Haiti. But even among that group, there are only a few who speak badly about Haiti itself. They're just advocating for alternative locations, but almost no one ever speaks an ill word about Haiti or its leadership, even in the worst of times. Even when revolts are happening, even when Boyer gets ousted, even when there's assassination attempts, even when there's real internal political problems and economic problems in Haiti, Black folks refused to disparage it. Their criticism remained solely focused on the problem of U.S. policy towards Haiti and the problem of how other white Western nations treated Haiti and emphasizing that all of Haiti's problems can be explained by global racism and the problem of how Haiti is being treated in the world. And I think that's powerful. I think that's significant because the disappointment of immigration could have caused people to really pop off on Boyer, right, on a whole variety of things. When you imagine the, the thousands of people who reverse migrated but spoke not an ill word, I think that says a lot about what they believed about the importance and the significance of Haiti and the level of commitment and solidarity that they had to its, its success, even when it was something less than what they hoped it would be. That is powerful. So we talked about how before the Civil War, it was all about let's get America to recognize Haiti diplomatically. But then, wildly, after America was like, we don't want to have any kind of association with Haiti. After the Civil War, Black Americans were rallying to keep America out of Haiti, because then America was all interested in being very much in Haiti's business. Following the conclusion of the Civil War, the United States becomes increasingly interested in trying to essentially develop a more imperialistic relationship towards Haiti. So what's really a, a sort of a, a sad, ironic twist in this story is that Black abolitionists had fought for decades to try to get the United States to formally recognize Haiti. And then once they finally do, they use their diplomatic relationship with Haiti as a way to try to extend imperial control over Haiti. So they try a couple of times to annex Haiti and make it United States territory almost immediately in the 1870s and 1880s. They obviously fail a number of times, but are finally successful during World War II. And they essentially use the, the threat 
of German power in the Caribbean as a way to justify the occupation of Haiti. So in 1915, the United States sends Marines into Haiti and commences one of the most brutal occupations that the U.S. military has ever been involved in. They occupy Haiti militarily from 1915 until 1934. And during that time, they rewrite Haiti's constitution. They essentially take control over the entire Haitian government and are ruling Haiti through military authority. During that time, you will be unsurprised to find out that Haitians wage a lengthy battle to try to oust U.S. authority, but the U.S. military is disturbingly and powerfully brutal towards the Haitian population in one skirmish, for example, killing 2,000 Haitian protesters who are seeking to regain their independence. The U.S. finally withdraws the Marines, but they continue to maintain control over Haitian government and over Haitian finances for another decade or so. And one of the most significant things that the United States does is that they use Haitian governmental resources to pay off the last of the indemnity to France, right? So for this entire century, Haiti is paying France in in installments, right? This money that they had supposedly owed them all the way back from 1825. So they finally arranged to pay off the last of that to the Haitian government. But in order to do that, the Haitian government is forced to agree to loans now from U.S. governmental institutions. So all the way to this day, so now again, we're almost a whole nother century later, the Haitian government owes millions and some people estimate billions of dollars to U.S. financial institutions in Washington, D.C. and in New York City as a result of ongoing efforts to try to repay the debts that connect all the way back to the 1825 indemnity. That's just some nonsense. It's crazy. So that's what I'm saying. You know, when I watch the news and I hear this repeated chance of Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, I always want to respond to that by saying, but there is a reason for that, right? It's by design. Like, it is not an accident of history It is not because Haitians are somehow incapable of governing themselves or of managing their money. It's that France and the United States have spent the last 200 years doing everything they can to financially exploit Haiti and to keep it in the position of being the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. So Black Americans were like actively tying their fate to the fate of Haiti. You kind of paralleled the fate of Black Americans post-freedom to the fate of the island of Haiti after independence. And they do parallel each other so much in the way that both of them were like set up to fail afterwards. It wasn't just like slaves are free. We're just going to like leave y'all alone to go do what you want to do. Go be successful. There were always limitations and kind of active work to like clamp down on any kind of success that could happen, both for Haitians internationally and for Black Americans domestically. There really is a lot in common to the condition we see both of them in right now. I think they understood then what we have to be mindful about now, which is that they really believed and understood that their fates were inextricably linked, that there might be an ocean that separates them, that they might speak a different language or practice a different religion 
or there are people they have never met and may never meet, but they knew that they could not rise and be a free people if Haitians could not and vice versa. And so they were as committed to Haiti's success as they were to their own. I think it's extraordinarily and tremendously powerful that they wanted Haiti to be successful as a free sovereign nation simply because it was a black sovereign nation. And that they believed that however the U.S. would treat Haiti is how they would treat their own black residents, right? And that turned out to be the case, as you said. Thank you so much for coming on my show. It's a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. The story of Black American history really is incomplete without including Black people outside of America. Again, Professor Alexander's book will be out in the fall if you're interested in it. And as always, follow me on social media. It's at We The Black People Pod on Facebook and Instagram and at We The Black Pod on Twitter. And keep spreading the word about the show. New year, let's get some new listeners. And all power to all people, y'all. <laughs>